On this week's episode, we talk to Ike Turner about Talk Talk. This is The Operative. I'm your host, Chris Williams. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, yeah. Far out. Okay. I'm uh, a dad of two. Um, I have two daughters. I have a partner, a lovely, understanding partner who puts up with a lot uh, named Mill. <laughs> um, I'm an English professor at a community college, and um, I've been playing music my entire well, I guess my entire life in one form or another, but my entire adult life I've been playing in in punk rock bands and stuff. Currently I'm in, uh, I guess, three bands. What is it, full-time? I don't know how to say that, but three or four actually, four bands full-time. And then I play drums once in a while with this band from uh, Colorado called New Standards Men. Um, I, oh, I live in Kalamazoo, Michigan. That's That's the other thing, but I'm not from there. I'm from North Dakota, so. So you wanted to discuss Talk Talk. Yeah, I, I, a, a band that I um, probably like some people my age, I don't, I don't know what everybody's experience is with them, but um, maybe we remember the, the, the big hit single from the 80s when we were kids. When, when we were kids, maybe in your house too, like, you know, the radio was just always on, right? Or it was in the car or it was on outside or in, in our case, it was always on at home, but then it was always on like at the, at the, at the swimming pool. And, you know, so there's three months of the summer where I'm at the swimming pool all day long, right? Literally all day long. And the radio was always on. So there's a whole lot of stuff that kind of goes in. Right. And I do remember enjoying this song that would occasionally come on and it would be on, played on uh, Casey Kasem's top 40, um, a song called it's my life. Right. You know, and it's that it's my life. Don't you forget. And I remember thinking, it's like, this is a pretty, pretty, uh, this is a pretty bitching song. You know, I really dig this one. And um, don't, didn't explore it any further. When I was a kid, I had tapes, like everybody, I guess, I had Duran Duran tapes and Howard Jones tapes and U2 and all sorts of stuff like that. And the Commodores tapes and things like that. But then when I got a little older, get into records, you know, uh, they didn't really register for me until I got sometime in my maybe late 20s after having worked at record stores and been in touring bands and all that stuff. <clears throat> I was talking with someone and they mentioned the record Laughing Stock. And I listened to it. And then not that much longer, not that much longer after that, my friend Ryan, um, who with whom I play in a in a band called Minutes, um, I went to his house and we were going, I picked him up for band practice, but we we would have this little ritual where I'd go to his house and him pick him up and he would make me a um like a curry burrito thing. <laughs> I think he felt like he needed to nurture me because I was so fucked up. And he uh, made me this curry burrito. And I remember him playing um, playing side one of that Talk Talk record also. So I was hearing it really close to each other and he just cranked it. And there's a very specific ride symbol on that record. And one thing to note on that album is that the the they were very insistent. This is on the record called Laughing Stock. Um, which would be the last Talk Talk record. They were insistent on using one microphone on the drums, right? Now, they did have some contact mics for uh, headphone feeds, right? So it's not, and I, and I, I, think, I think that Phil Brown is a little 
squirrely as to whether he mixed any of the contact mic mic stuff in with the mix. And because it does sound, it does sound really good. Like it sounds like a really great drum set, but it's also played quite sparsely. But I just remember that ride cymbal. And then from that point on, I mean, it was just like a um, an obsession of listening to um, really the 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 last three Talk Talk records, and then there's a final album that was supposed to be the final Talk Talk record. And in fact, even up to the point of like promo CDs going out, it was called something different and it was called Talk Talk. Um, but that came out as a Mark Hollis solo record. Um, what drew me into these albums, particularly Spirit of Eden and then um, Laughing Stock and then the Mark Hollis solo record, those three, it's kind of like a triumvirate or a, a trilogy in some ways. What drew me into them was the... Um, the atmosphere that they create with this with very sparse instrumentation and then you come away with it realizing like oh wait a second there's nothing sparse about this at all like this is there's there's probably like 60 instruments being played <laughs> on that one song and then reading about it you figure out you find out like oh yeah no there's like 60 instruments played on certain songs you know and yet it still just sounded so beautifully and delicately put together um, all three of those records. Um, to the one that really hooked me though was Spirit of Eden. That was the um, the album that that really got me. That one came out in 1988, and it was recorded for about a year. Uh, you know, uh, six months to a year. Was it 1,500 hours of tape used on that record, or something crazy? Like some astronomically bizarre number of uh, of things that happened on that record. And it was one that, uh, for me, I, it's my, my personal favorite because it maintains just like a hint of the lightness that came from earlier Talk Talk records. Like there's still just a tiny little hint of like, oh no, people are, um, people are still maybe possibly enjoying themselves while making this album. <laughs> right? There's like a, there's just a hint there. Um, and I don't think that that is necessarily in place in the, the last two. They're great for other reasons, but um, it's really it's really this really, you know, oh, kind of beautiful thing. The other thing that when they made that record, The Spirit of Eden, obviously I didn't know this when I first started listening to it, was that it was a record that was, the intention was for it to be made with instruments that happened up to, but not after 1967, right? Because this is the year that Phil Brown, the guy who recorded, <clears throat> you know, these Talk Talk records, this is the year he was at this famous, or famous for him, recording session with the band Traffic. And these dudes in Talk Talk were super obsessed with Traffic. And they were obsessed with how Traffic got their records to sound the way they did. Now, I listen to those tra Traffic records, maybe, you know, maybe you did too, or like growing up with those Traffic records my dad would play. I wouldn't say there's anything necessarily um, unique sounding about them, but there was to these dudes in Talk Talk, right? And so they have only instruments that would be used up to that. I think their one workaround or their one give was they had a um, digital tape machine to to um, to capture dailies on and to do other little things on, right? So there's like a digital tape machine there. Other than that, it's like this pre-1967 experience. And that was what they were going for, this part of this vibe that they were going for with this record. Um, and again, I, I mentioned the lightness. They put out a record out right before Spirit of Eden called The Color of Spring. And that still maintains some of the sort of synth pop 
nature of what they were doing. They were sort of marketed as like, a, a, if you like Duran Duran, you'll like Talk Talk, right? And there's still a hint of that with the color of spring, but you can see them moving into something different. Um, and then famously, when you read about the record, it was a, a weird scene in the studio. They There was no lights on in the studio, except for strobe lights around the drummer. And then um, oil lights, you know, like the oil lights, like the 60s oil lights. And then they would light incense and there'd be incense going around. <clears throat> and they would do this weird process on both of the records where the drummer would set up and play like for 12 hours. I, I think about that. I play drums myself. And I can't imagine playing for 12 hours. Like that would be just fucking bonkers, you know? Like, and then they would edit down the four or five, six, seven minutes that they wanted from all those 12 hours. Like, okay, there's the snippet we want. And then they would record to that, you know? Um, so that, but that is, is great. Um, then when the record's finally done, it's mixed, it's mastered. They give it to the, the, the NR rep dude at the studio and he cries when he hears it not because of the reason that I cry when I hear it, <laughs> which is, it's so beautiful. It makes me fucking cry. Um, but he cries because he just sees his career flying out the window. <laughs> and then, um, but it goes on to, and talk, talk about economy of scale though. It goes on to sell 500,000 copies. I mean, I think that's a crazy amount of copies to sell. And yet it was seen as a complete failure at the time. You know, seen as just this like abject failure. In fact, they're dropped by that that record label. Um, but uh, after that, and then they're picked up by Polydor, and that's when the story continues. You know, but that's yeah, a wild, wild scene. So you kind of you you preferred when they started pulling away from the pop stuff. Yeah, I do. Um, having not known anything about this, and I don't want to give myself any credit at all because <laughs> I'm an idiot. Um, but not knowing anything about um, what was going on with the recording of those records before listening to them, I think it's pretty apparent that these people were going for um, a vibe that would be akin to uh, John Coltrane record mm. from the mid-60s or something. Um, that were, They were going for a vibe that was setting a mood as much as it is serving whatever the aspect of the song is. I just read about um, 56 years ago today, A Love Supreme came out. I was just reading about it. And um, apparently in that recording studio, the recording engineer there dimmed all the lights in the studio. And so that, the, that when they made A Love Supreme, it was a darkened room. They could see each other, but it was still, they were in a darkened room. And I just think that's great. I kind of love that people uh, want to pay attention to those things and, I mean, how many studios have you been in where it's been just a completely sterile situation and, mm -hmm. you know, not a terribly fun aesthetic place to hang out? I've recorded in studios like that. I've recorded in studios where it's been super fun and great and there's a vibe and you can sleep there and it's awesome. Um, but but yeah, that that idea of them creating this sort of space and they were able to do it because they had a huge advance from their record label, right? They They had a huge advance. That was like, oh yeah, here's um, a half a million pounds. Um, go make a record, you know, like that's crazy, right? I mean, that's like an astounding amount of money, and um, and 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 maybe we all would lose our mind if we were given that much money to make a record. I, you know, I'm not sure, but by the reports of by people reading about this, it's like, yeah, some <clears throat> some people didn't come out of this process exactly the same way that they went into it, you know. 
Um, so yeah, so I think that there's a vibe that is set there as well. Um, that's, that's really, you know, should be acknowledged. Um, and I know that's not for everybody. I know people, some people are very workman, work person, like when it comes to making records and they just think it's like, no, you go in, you do this, you do that, whatever. And other people don't, don't resonate that way. They need to have a little bit of a vibe set before they can, you know, get to it. So, yeah. So the synth pop stuff is great. I'm not degrading that at all. I hope I didn't, I hope I didn't say anything bad. Um, but I, uh, it's not, it doesn't resonate with me as much as when they're clearly getting into a different mode. Um, and then it also makes sense that a lot of music that resonated with me when I got into my um, late teens and early twenties was music that was certainly influenced by, by these records. I remember getting that first um, Ariel M EP, um, uh, the, the David Pajos records, right? I got that and then uh, the, the, the Live from a Shark Cage. And those albums just blew my mind. Like they just completely blew my mind. And if you listen to the song um, Arundel, I think it's pronounced Arundel, mm -hmm. like Anne Arundel uh, in the DC area. If it's Arundel, I'm sorry, but I, I, I don't know. I, I've only ever heard that word pronounced on the DC Metro. So I'll say Arundel. Um, that one sounds like it could be on, on a Talk Talk record. It's this like very sparse guitar piece that sounds like Mark Hollis playing guitar, you know, and I, and I don't know if David Pajo was a big fan or not, but it would stand a reason. Um, I know that the bedhead dudes, you know, liked, liked Talk Talk and they had my number from way early on, one of my favorite bands of all time, you know, in, in the new year by extension. You know, um, I, I know that Mogwai uh, had elements of Talk Talk when they made their records and I still, you know, to this day, just uh, love those albums, you know? So there's a whole bunch of the DNA of Talk Talk in other bands. Um, and that that part I, I appreciate too, so. Do you think the mood that they were trying to evoke overall that it, it, they were successful? I do. Um, I know that it bummed out like the studio owners that they were at, <laughs> of the studio that they're at in, is it Essex or Sussex? I don't remember which town outside of London. I know like the, the, the constant noise bummed them out because they would set up and play, like he would set up and play the same two chords all day long for days on end. Literally the same two chords. And I know like studio uh, people were getting really annoyed by that because they're like, what is going on here? It's like a, listening to a drill. Um, but then those two chords end up being five seconds of a song and it's the most perfect thing you've ever heard, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think it was totally successful. I think it was totally successful. Um, in fact, there's a weird, um, you know, the now dead electrical audio message board, rest in peace. Um, there was a really weird thread on there about Talk Talk once. And there was these, uh, you know, these bros being bro-y on there. And we're talking about how they thought it was super fickle and silly that Mark Hollis and these guys would set this tone, like with oil lamps and lights out and, 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 uh, and strobe lights around the drummer and incense, which does not seem excessive to me at all, by the way. Like, think of what Steely Dan did to just like get into a comfortable chair, you know, <laughs> like, or to get the type, the right type of Coke that they needed before they could lay down, you know, gaucho. We're, 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 we're talking about some people who wanted a little bit of mood lighting. And I remember reading that thread and, and very consciously thinking to myself, I don't ever want to record with that guy. I don't ever want to record with that guy either. You know, like, if they're not like willing to just sort of 
have a little bit of play in the way in which a person makes an album, you know, then we can all make records at different places. Like there's lots of places to make records that are going to sound really good. And um, in that part, I think they were incredibly successful in setting their mood, you know. Certainly what we have is the product, right? You know, you've got the thing that's there. You have the record, the document. Um, and in this case, you know, like there's not a wasted note on, on any of these albums, you know, they're just completely, for being, for some of the songs on these records are nine minutes long, seven minutes long, eight minutes long. These are long songs, right? Well, you're in a band that plays songs that stretch out too. So you understand that kind of willingness to do that, right? These are long songs. And um, for having a long song where it doesn't have any real, there's not really any, you know, separating the wheat from the chaff type thing. There's, it's all wheat. <laughs> and I think that's pretty great. So is there anything from listening to them over the years that you've taken and tried to implement within your songwriting or within your recording process or anything like that? Songwriting, yeah, yes, absolutely. There was a, a group of songs I wrote. So um, a little bit ago, maybe this is now two years ago or three years ago, but time is, time's fucking with me, man. I don't, I'm not good with it. <laughs> We're, I, I, I see the end and I, and, I, and yet I, I, I also remember the beginning. So I don't know, time is, is this weird thing. I'm in the middle, I guess. There's about three, two or three years ago where I hit this um, incredibly fertile um, songwriting jig, right? Or, you know, vein, where like a miner looking for stuff. And I didn't question it too much at the time, but I was just writing a lot of songs. I mean, there would be days where I would write a couple songs and I would send them, I'd either keep them or I'd send them to my, my partners and you know, I'd send one to Chafe or I'd send them to Frankie or I'd send them to Zach or whatever. You know, these are the people I was kind of thinking about when I was writing. And at that same time, it's no cool. I really don't think it's a coincidence, to be honest with you. Every single night, every single night I was listening to a Talk Talk record. Every night. I'd put the headphones on and I would fall asleep or listen to it and then fall asleep. Or I'd listen to it while I was doing the dishes or whatever. And so there's no way some of that didn't get into, you know, the synapses. There's just no way. Now, much like maybe with David Bowie or, um, or The Cure or Frank Ocean records, um, I love these records so much. I love them more than, you know, whatever, however many records a person has. I love them way up at the top. And I never consciously would ever think about, uh, uh, being inspired by them because they're so they make music that does not feel natural for me to make but with talk talk there is this specific rhythm that the drummer plays with on a couple different songs or it's a specific rhythm within a within a goalpost right like it's in there and i just gravitated towards that on a bunch of different demos i'm sure the drummer in in my band wowza was just like what the Fuck this again, you know, like, and he would change it a little bit because he's a super awesome drummer and, you know, like he, he knows what's up, but it was this pretty weird thing where I was just kind of constantly, you know, doing this shuffle beat thing on the, not shuffle beat, not like a pretty, pretty shuffle, but like this sort of skittery beat on the drums. And I would find myself playing it for, for what, for me would be a long time, you know, 10 minutes or something. Um, and, and, and that got its way into the songs. With the guitar, I, I, I tried to, you know, 
uh, refine my own style of guitar playing, which is shitty. <laughs> I play guitar like a like a shitty dumbass, um, but I I do have a couple little tricks that I like to rely on. And um, I think one of those little tricks that I like to rely on, I couldn't even explain what it is, but um, is definitely a talk talk thing for sure. Yeah, oh, 100%. It's like a this little, I don't know, it's like a little a little thing, a little move, I suppose they say. And, um, you know, like a, uh, I don't know how to do it. It's like just kind of little, it's like when you go high and then you hit a low note pretty quickly thereafter, like, bong, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and I, I do, I think I worked that into a bunch of different songs, you know. And then when we went into the studio, um, I've never had any specific needs in terms of a vibe at all um, in the studio. Like when Out makes records, we make them with the one dude in town here that we're really comfortable with. And he has his own trip. So we follow his trip, right? Because he's like, he's really, you know, he knows what's up. When Minutes makes records, we, we just do them on our own. And so we're just kind of with each other and just do them on our own. When um, when when other bands go into the studio, I, I love being in different studios. I've been able to be in a few different studios um, recently because, because I'm lucky, right? Super lucky person to get to do that. And um, I love seeing how people set up a different vibe in different studios, like uh, this one in Iowa called uh, Black Box. I'm sorry, Flat Black, Flat Black Studios in Iowa. Um, our friend Luke Tweedy owns and operates that and he records bands there. And I made a couple of records there now. And both of them, the vibe is just so cool and laid back and fun. Um, you play this kind of dice game in between takes, like this really simple dice game, but it's also like, man, I'm gonna get you, you know, like you get really fucking into it, you know? And then you go outside, you go for a walk and it's in the woods or there's woods back there and you're in the middle of a cornfield, um, you know, sit around the fire at night. Uh, um, I got up early and drink coffee and write my, my, my shitty lyrics. And, and I, I love that. I really love that vibe of just being at, at peace when you're making a record. Right. Um, and I think that talk talk, you know, has allowed me to think about that in more extreme ways. I, I want to try some different shit in the studio at some point, you know, um, I know a couple bands I'm in are going to be recording soon and, or well, you know, soon enough. And I'm stoked to, to, to try and engage in that with those bands. Like, no, let's set a vibe up. Let's try and, let's try and get comfortable. Let's buy it. Let's buy three days. You know, let's not blast through in one day. Let's, let's figure it out. We're adults. Let's see. Let's, let's do this, you know? So I think if you had some time, you know, whatever, 80 minutes, whatever it, it is, I would queue up um, Color of Spring and then immediately listen to Spirit of Eden after that. And then think, okay, wow, this one came out in 1986 and then this one came out in 1988. It's really not that long between those two, right? Like two years is nothing, you know? It might even be like closer to 18 months or something. I, I don't remember. And they're both really good. They're both uh, set a mood and they're both just doing such different things. I mean, there's little elements from the color of spring you can hear again on, on, on Spirit of Eden, but they're just doing such different, they're swimming in such different waters. And I think that those two taken together would provide like um, enough 
for you to decide whether you want to keep on moving forward with this music. You know what I mean? Like, oh, okay, I liked that enough. Now I'm going to listen to Laughing Stock, which <clears throat> I think is what most people think is the real masterpiece is Laughing Stock. I think it's Spirit of Eden, but most people point, point to that one because it is so um, beautiful sounding. A, it's just beautiful sounding. It's perfect, perfect sound. But it also is just so stretched out. Like it's just this really stretched out piece of work. Um, so yeah, that's 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 what I would do. Those two would give you enough information to be like, okay, this is for me. Um, or, oh, this isn't for me, you know. Which there are so many bands that just don't resonate with us, right? That we're just like, nope, I'm sorry, I tried. You know, I gave it my best and that isn't for me, you know. I I think I enjoy one fall album. Like literally, I think I like one album by the band Fall, the record called Hex Induction Hour. Mm. I like that record. I don't like any of that other shit, man. Like, and I, I've listened to a, mo a bunch of it. I don't dislike it. I appreciate people who dig it, but I don't need to go any further with, with that band other than that one, you know, other than that one record. And, and that's cool too. That, that Imagine making an album that resonates with somebody you know, so what the other stuff doesn't re resonate with, with, with anybody or with, with that person or whatever, big deal. But that one album that resonates with them, that's pretty amazing, you know? So that would give you, I think enough, like, you know, ammunition or information to go forward or not. So, so, you know, the egghead in me will say that James Joyce said it took him seven years to write Ulysses and that it should take you seven years to read it. <laughs> and I, that's like the height of modernism, right? Like the most pretentious thing on the planet to say. But that I think really is the mode, like if I was going to compare Talk Talk Records to any time frame, it would be, and in, in, in my mind thinks in literary time frames because that's my job, right? It would be high modernism. Like I, I, I'm, I, I shit you not, I compartmentalize talk talk records in my mind the same place that i put john coltrane records um sunny Chirac records and then like you know the wasteland by t.s Eliot, and the love song of Geoffrey Prufrock. right again you know should we continue to read these old you know uh probably not great white dudes I don't know if we should or not. I know that I read a shitload of it and it still resonates with me. And that's that that that's my excuse. It's not an excuse. It's some of it is irrefutably perfect. Um, and I understand that that, you know, that that can be a weird loaded statement to say. And I don't hope that doesn't turn anybody off. But like with the work of the high modernists, Elliot, I would say Pound, Joyce, some of that freaky deaky. Uh, uh, um, uh, stuff that Virginia Woolf did in, in Mrs. Dalloway and some of those things, those pieces of art require you uh, to, bring, to bring something to the table that isn't just passive reception. Um, I like passive reception music. <laughs> <laughs> Motherfucker, Molly Crew comes on the stereo, crank, you know, like that's my shit too. But I also appreciate things that are not passive reception music, right? That are like steeped in a tradition and require you to bring this thing to it that is not just, oh, I'm grooving on this, you know? 
you know, and I think that talk talk requires that a little bit. That can be off putting for some people that can be um, that can sound classist. Right. Because not everybody has access. Like when you read Eliot, not everybody knows Greek in the original Greek. Not everybody can speak German. Not everybody can speak French. So then how do you decipher all the stuff this dude's saying in an unabridged volume of his work? Right. Well, you work through it <laughs> you know, like you you dig in and you work through it. And then sometimes it makes sense and sometimes it doesn't, but it's always going to be there and you should read it and get it and get to it again and again and again. I think that, you know, the work of Alice Monroe is not unlike that. She's not a modernist, you know, but I think her work is like that too, in some ways, it gets going to feel slow as fuck. And you're going to be thinking like, Oh my God, what is going on here? Why do I, why do I care about like postal routes in Saskatchewan? In the 1880s, like, what the fuck? And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, boom, you know, right hook. Oh, wow. Okay, that's intense. You know, like, and you needed to know about this dumb shit postal route in Saskatchewan in 1880 for this thing over here to really land. Like, those things needed to be there in in an Alice Monroe story, you know. And I put Talk Talk in that same, you know, my rapidly degrading mind. (laughs) I put Tok Tok in the same space where I can still form a like coherent thought about literature, you know, and and um, and and and, and, I, and that that gives me pleasure, you know, that makes me feel good when I can think of a pop band as being something more than just a pop band kind of, you know, I like that. So. The operative is produced in conjunction with Radio Nope. For more information, visit radionope.com. And for all of our past episodes, visit theoperative.bandcamp.com. Thank you.